Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. People are kind of wringing their hands right now, particularly in the wake of Donald Trump's phone call to Raffsenperger on Saturday, where he basically threatened him with criminal action if he didn't flip the election, named the number of votes he wanted Raffsenperger to find and certify and also tried flattering him and begging. I mean, the, the whole transcript's over at The Washington Post. It's pretty grim. And, you know, prior to this coming out, there were a dozen senators, Republicans all, of course, who were saying, we're going to challenge the vote on January 6th. We're going to challenge the vote and we're on Donald's side here. Or at the very least, we think that this fraud should be, you know, Ted Cruz coming out saying, well, yeah, but between now and the swearing-in day, we have plenty of time. We can do it and investigate. Right, right. So people are, are like, you know, what's going to happen to these people and why are they doing this? And, and, you know, the main excuse that I've heard, and I've probably heard this a hundred times over the last couple of days on, on uh, various news channels on TV, is that these people are doing this because they're afraid of Donald Trump. They're afraid that they're going to get primaried. They're afraid of the consequences. They need his support to hold on to their base. That, these kinds of stories. And that may be true of a few members of the House of Representatives, which is up for re- every single member of the House is up for re-election every two years. But it's certainly not true of the senators who have recently gotten re-elected or won't stand for re-election for a while. So what's really going on? I think that what's really happening here is that we are seeing not the rise of Donald Trump. I mean, yes, that's happening, and now the fall of Donald Trump. But what we are seeing concurrent with it is the rise of a new American fascist movement. Now, fascist movements in the United States almost always follow economic crises. And going back to Toynbee's uh, comment, you know, that when the man who remembers, when the last man who remembers the horrors of the last great war dies, the next great war becomes inevitable. In other words, roughly every 80 years, we are doomed to repeat our mistakes. You know, just consider, if fascism is the merger of state and government combined with basically police state tactics, That is what was happening here in the colonies in North America in the 1760s and 1770s. The East India Company controlled all our commerce. Uh, The Brits enforced that with a brutal rule of law. And, you know, as as, as large chunks of the East India Company were owned by members of parliament, the East India Company by and large owned the members of parliament. They got what they wanted. That led right to the Boston Tea Party, the Stamp Act, all that kind of stuff. Right, the Tea Act, the Stamp Act, the, the Boston Ports Act. So, number one, we had a fascist regime operating in North America that the founders overthrew. That was the British. So then in the Deep South, a new fascist regime emerged, founded and centered around large plantations, 
where the plantation owners over about a 40, 50 year period leading up to the 1840s, 1850s, I lay all this out in my book on uh, oligarchy, which will be out in just a couple of weeks, The Hidden History of Oligarchy. The plantation owners, basically the big ones, basically wiped out all their small competitors, rose to incredible political power in the South, and decided to defy the North and declared war on the North. It was an attempt to take down American democracy and replace our Republican form of government. I use that with a small r as the way that the founders used the word. To replace our Republican form of government in the North with a pseudo-fascist form of government as they had in the South. Abraham Lincoln defeated that effort uh, ultimately in, 1860, in what, 1864, I think the Civil War ended, or 65. And that was the end of that, until the fascists rose again in the United States. And there was a, a new fascist movement in the United States that happened in the 1920s and 1930s, where you had American fascists having giant rallies. In many cases, they were using Nazi armbands, not just the German-American Bund, but others. There was an entire fascist movement in the United States throughout the 1930s. It was led in large part by a guy by the name of Charles Lindbergh, who was famous because he had flown across the Atlantic for solo flight across the Atlantic. And this fascist, this openly fascist movement, over a hundred members of Congress who represented this movement, who were members of this movement, stood up on the floor of the House of Representatives of the United States Senate throughout the 1930s the late 1930s, to give speeches talking about how wonderful Adolf Hitler was and how terrible it was. These, these were almost all Republicans. I've read some of these to you. Uh, Rick, Rick Stout compiled these speeches into a book called The Illustrious Dunderheads. He was the best-selling author in the world in, in the 1950s when this came out. He created Nero Wolf, the, the fictional detective. And he compiled them into this book, and I've read some of them on the air here where these guys were saying, oh, Adolf Hitler, he's not such a bad guy, and, and you know, he, he's the George Washington of Germany, and we can do business with Hitler, and FDR just wants to get into a war so he can consolidate his power and get himself reelected, and stuff like that, right? So we had the second fascist movement in the United States that was openly fascist in the 1930s. In fact, some wealthy people in the second fascist movement even conspired to overthrow Franklin Roosevelt and possibly kidnap or assassinate him. They approached General Smedley Butler. He blew the whistle on them. So, you know, they had a half million people who were ready to march on Washington, D.C. and seize Roosevelt. That fascist movement ended with the end of World War II when we all saw what the death camps looked like in Germany and realized, oh, this is the logical outcome of fascism. So... We start with the American Revolution. 80 years later, you got the Civil War. 80 years after that, you've got World War II and the end of the fascist movement. Here we are now, it's 80 years later. It's been 80 years since 1940. And we've got a brand new fascist movement in the United States all over again. I don't think these members of Congress are afraid of Trump. I don't think they're worried about being primaried. I think they want to jump into this fascist movement because they want to be leaders of it. They want the power, the adulation, the access to wealth. That's what they want, and that's why they're doing this. And there's a competition among those at the higher levels. That would be the Ted Cruz, the Tom Cottons, the Josh Hawleys. There's a competition among them for who's going to be the next leader of the movement as Trump is dethroned and probably thrown in jail. Who's going to be the next leader of the fascist movement in the United States? Now, I, you know, I might be wrong and I welcome your challenges. What do you think about this? But I think this is what's going on. And I think the stakes are much larger than whether or not Donald Trump goes to jail or whether or not uh, Tom Cotton and Josh Hawley look like fools. I think that if we don't point out that this is fascism, and fascism happens in a particular way in countries. It has here in this country. It led to the Civil War. It led to World War II. And now fascism could lead to World War III. Because fascism usually ends in war. What do we do about it? As a start, we call out the fascists, right? We label it. This is the Tom Hartman Program. 
But what other remedies might there be? Let's talk about that. Tom Hartman here. Did you know that the Second Amendment was written to protect the slave patrols in South Carolina and Georgia back in the day? It's in my new book, The Hidden History of Guns and the Second Amendment. Check it out. Thanks so much. You're listening to Tom Hartman. I just want to mention this briefly. The Washington Post ran an op-ed by uh, Robert Wachter, who is the chair of the Department of Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. His co-author, Ashish Jha, is the dean of Brown University's School of Public Health. And what they're saying is that we know that one single shot gives you 80 to 90% immunity, and even when you get sick, you don't die. Right? The fatality rate after one shot, this is out of the Pfizer research, is zero but people still can get sick. And that's why they do the two shot thing. And some shot, you know, some inoculations require two shots. But the one shot not only prevents you from dying, but also in most cases prevents you from even getting sick, you know, between 70 and 90% effective, depending on the study and whether you're talking about Pfizer or Moderna. And so what they're saying is we have We thought we were going to have 20 million people vaccinated by the end of December. That's what Trump had promised us both in November and in early December. He lied, of course. And we're at about, what, one and a half million people have gotten vaccines now? And about 10 million doses have been distributed. And their point is, out of the 10 million doses that have been distributed, 5 million of them are not going to be going into people's arms which is kind of skewing the numbers. It makes it look like, you know, a much lower percentage of people are getting shots. Well, they're not going to people's arms because the hospitals and whatnot are holding them back to give a second dose three weeks from now. And so what these two physicians are recommending in the Washington Post is that we just first vaccine everybody in sight. Right. I mean, following the same priority, start out with essential workers, start out with healthcare workers, start out with people who are in a position not just to encounter a lot of people that could cause them to get infected, but encounter a lot of people who they could infect, whether it's a bus driver or a police officer, a fire department, whatever it may be. You know, inoculate all those people, then inoculate everybody over 70, then everybody over 60, then, you know, start working your way down. Do it like that. But just do the first shot. We've got 10 million of these doses out. We'll have 20 million of these doses out in the next week or so. Let's get them all in people's arms. Because Trump screwed this up so badly, there is absolutely no federal coordination as to how these vaccines get into people. None. And no federal funds. And no help. And no assistance. And not even any guidelines or recommendations. Nothing. These people totally screwed this up. So let's just get as many people 80% immunized as possible, as quickly as possible. And then we can take a deep breath and give them the second shot, even if it's a few weeks late. Now, in the United Kingdom, Boris Johnson says, even though the second shot is supposed to come at four weeks, he's willing to push it all the way out to 12 weeks, three months. And that way they can give the first shot to everybody in the country and then come back and give the second shot to everybody. I'm inclined to agree with these guys in the Washington Post. What do you think? Joe in Cupertino, California. Hey, Joe, thanks for watching us on Free Speech TV. What's up? Happy New Year, Tom. Thank you so much. I took your advice and started walking a lot more, and I feel a lot better. But I wanted to see if you had a chance to see Amy Goodman over the weekend. She had a couple of physicians on, and they were talking about the manufacturing of this vaccine and how apparently, you know, they use the CRISPR to get the information to make it, and then they wouldn't share it. There are major pharmaceutical companies abroad that manufacture pharmaceutical medications for us in America every day, but we can't seem to get them to do the vaccine because I guess Moderna's patent and AstraZeneca and all these other companies, as Trump rolls out this, they got to get their money first. And, you know, it really bothers me because it seems like our country has become a business. This is not right. Anyway, the coordinator for the access to international vaccines is the campaign for access to medicine in third world countries. This relates to, what is it, the World Health Organization's COVAX 
scheme where everybody pitches in and everybody gets the vaccine. Whether I get the shot or you get right. the shot is important, but it's not going to matter if the third southern hemisphere doesn't get the vaccine. No one's going to travel. I cannot understand why Congress cannot put their heads around this. Dr. Paul Farmer, this gentleman was in uh, Ebola in Africa in a, that for 10, 20 years ago, recognized this was going to be a big deal. He went over and helped right. cure that disease. He also was instrumental in making sure that HIV medication is available at a cost that third world countries can afford. I mean, it was what $30,000 right. a year to get HIV medicine in the States. But now it's... Joe, let me speak to, to this, if I may. I get your rant. And you're absolutely right. You know, if AstraZeneca has a patent on their process, nobody else can make vaccine using their process. If Moderna has a patent on their process, et cetera. And the reason for that is fairly obvious. These companies say, hey, we put money and time and effort into developing the vaccine and perhaps more importantly, into, you know, scaling up our assembly processes so that we can, Joe, let me finish, so that we can manufacture it like crazy and, you know, we are entitled to a return on our investment. I think we all agree broadly with that principle. I mean, you know, inventors get to benefit from their invention. The problem is that a large chunk of this invention did not come from these private corporations. It came from the National Institutes of Health in the United States and other federal agencies around the world. mRNA type of vaccine was developed directly to deal with SARS and MERS. That's why they had it on the shelf and it was ready to go because SARS and MERS are coronaviruses. And specifically the one that AstraZeneca is using right now was the base development for it was for MERS, for the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome. So what I would propose is that any vaccine, and really we need to do this going forward, vaccines that are developed using public money have either a very, very limited patent period of time or there are huge exceptions to the patent, like you know, generic manufacturers and other manufacturers can make it, but they have to pay a 10% royalty to the patent holder, or there is no patent at all, although that's going to make it much harder to get anybody to manufacture it if you don't invoke the Defense Production Act. But those are the ways that I would deal with that, Joe. But you know, she's identified the problem, and you've identified the problem, but identifying the solution is gonna be the challenge. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that the vast majority of, of New drug development costs in this country and in many other countries are paid for by the taxpayers. And yet the taxpayers get none of the benefit. All that benefit goes to the fat cats, the corporate fat cats and these giant pharmaceutical companies. So back in 2018, Bayer, the German pharmaceutical company, bought Monsanto, the American chemical and pesticide company, and God only knows what else, you know, seeds and whatnot. Anyhow, Bayer bought them for $63 billion. Bayer just very recently set aside $10 billion to cover the cost of consumers, people in their homes, who bought Roundup and got non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, cancer, from Roundup, this product that Monsanto makes that Bayer now is responsible for, $10 billion. The kicker is that the home use of Roundup only represents about 10% of Monsanto's sales of this product, glyphosate. It's amazing. There's a whole video about this over at TomHartman.com. You can check it out over there. Welcome back. Tom Harmon here with you. Uh, Tyrone in Harlem, New York. Hey, Tyrone, what's up? Hey, good. Happy New Year. I think we kind of delaying the inevitable because talking about delusion and the, the, the delusional attitude of these people that want to believe and need to believe that this white supremacy is the only way America can move forward. And they're willing to, I believe that they're willing to fight and die for it. Being that we had to have a, a war to actually to hold this country together, I don't see where we're going to avoid this bloodshed trying to hold on to this delusion of this superior race. The fact that the browner this country gets, the more fanatical these people become of holding on to that belief. 
I agree, Tyrone, and I think that the issue is a little bit bigger than that. And let me run this yeah. by you and see if you can punch any holes in this theory here. There was a, a fascinating piece published over on Medium.com over the weekend about The Simpsons. You know, The Simpsons started back in the 90s, oh, yes. 30 years ago. I mean, Homer Simpson is a high school graduate. He never went to college, right? One person yeah. with a high school degree holding a simple job was able to raise a family, pay, you know, raise his kids, send them to school, buy a house, buy a car, take vacations, have a, quote, normal middle class life, end quote. And that is what the boom in prosperity in the United States brought about, mostly for white people after World War II. And I say mostly for white people because from the, from the end of World War II up until the 1960s, there were specific laws in place that required it be exclusively for white people. Black people couldn't even get the GI Bill, basically, you know, to buy a house yes. and things. And then following 1965, it wasn't so much law anymore, but it became basically policy. And so a whole lot of white people moved into the middle class. We went from you know, 30, 40% of Americans being middle class to over 60% of Americans being middle class by the mid-1950s. And again, most of them white people. And now, 10 years ago, now after 40 years of Reaganomics gutting the mostly white American middle class, 10 years ago was the, was the moment in time, uh, 2010 actually was the year, that, that half of America fell below the middle class. And, and a lot of that, you know, and disproportionately that hit people of color, but it also wiped out a lot of white people. And so what you've got now, it's, it's easy to give people things incrementally. It's really hard to take things away from people. And you got a lot of white people who I believe if they had a decent job, if they had a Homer Simpson job where with one paycheck they could support their families and have a decent life, they would not be joining, you know, the Proud Boys or the Three Percenters or whatever and showing up at these protests and things. They would just be living their lives and they would keep their, their racist beliefs and all their BS to themselves. But now, because they feel like they've been robbed, they are really upset and they're looking around saying, who robbed me? And you got a bunch of Republicans out there saying, it was the black people, it was the Hispanic people, uh, you know, and that kind of thing. And so now it has become, you know, uh, racialized as it were. And so I think that, you know, step one is, yeah, we've, we've as absolutely had to deal with white racism. And number two, not just for white people, for everybody in America, we need to abandon Reaganomics and put back together an economy that works for everyone. Bring back the damn middle class. What do you think, Tyrone? I think that is definitely a path to take. But my fear is that it don't matter how much, like Johnson said, you know, you give somebody to look down on, he'll help you pick his pockets. The fact that if I feel that what you have is making me poor, <laughs> I, you know, it don't matter how much I have. You're taking something away from me, regardless of what it is. If I have a house and a car and my family's doing well, and I look and see you across the street, and I don't like the color of your skin, I don't like your religion, I don't like basic things, that is what I'm focused on, even though I'm doing well. You know, things are going well for me, but I'm still convinced that because you are supposed to be less than me, you're not supposed to have anything because it's taken away from what I have. And that is what that, that well, is what no, I, to I totally get it, but I think that that's the yeah. kind of that kind of thing being acted out in public and said out loud and becoming socially acceptable, which is what has happened in the United States over the last decade and particularly over yeah. the last five years because everybody's following the example of Trump. That, I believe, in part comes out of economic difficulty right across the board, yeah. which is not an excuse at all. It has to be recognized as the poison that it is. But I think that, you know, uh, respectfully, I think that we need to deal with this problem. This problem exists on a bunch of different levels. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I mean, racism has always been an economic issue, you know? I mean, back to the founding of the Republic. Anyhow, Tyrone, thank you. Thank you for the call. Thanks for a thoughtful conversation. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR 
into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. A new year is a new chance to focus on you. You're probably already picturing yourself struggling at the gym, but not all self-help has to mean suffering. Squeeze.com is making it easier than ever to elevate your wellness by delivering a juice cleanse right to your doorstep. It's the easiest juice cleanse you'll ever do that may aid in weight loss, eliminating bloating, clearing your skin, boosting your energy levels, improving sleep, and breaking bad eating habits. Meet all your health goals from the comfort of your home. Get free same-day local delivery or fast free delivery nationwide with code WONDERY today at squeezed.com. Our book today is How to Be Less Stupid About Race by Crystal M. Fleming. This is from the introduction, The Origins of Racial Stupidity. It opens with an epigraph from Martin Luther King Jr. It is an aspect of their sense of superiority that the white people of America believe they have so little to learn. From the introduction. Hundreds of years after establishing a nation on colonial genocide and chattel slavery, people are kind of sort of maybe possibly waking up to the sad reality that our racial politics are still garbage. But as our society increasingly confronts the social realities of race, we're faced with a barrage of confusing developments. How could the same country that voted twice for an Ivy League-educated black president end up electing an overt racist who can barely string together two coherent sentences? Why do white liberals who can't even confront their Trump-supporting friends and families think that they can lead the resistance? Democrats who don't care about mass deportations or the treatment of Muslims under Obama suddenly care now that a Republican is in charge. While black and brown people are being crushed by systemic white supremacy, the rapper Common thinks we can all get over a race by extending a hand in love. Don Lemon still has a job. Rachel Dolezal exists. Everyone has an opinion about race, but 99% of the population has never studied it. And even many textbooks that talk about race are filled with lies, inaccuracies, and so-called alternative facts. With so much racial ignorance in the world, how can we ever find our way to that glorious mountaintop Martin Luther King Jr. glimpsed right before a white racist killed him? Although race is an inherently divisive topic, the cause of continual controversy, Facebook feuds, and endless debates, there is exactly one thing and one thing only that we can probably all touch and agree on regardless of our racial or ethnic identity, gender, age, political beliefs, or shoe size. And that is that we are surrounded by racial stupidity. From the White House to Waffle House, from the classroom to the internet comments section, from the television to the tiki torch aisle of your local Pier 1, we are surrounded and at a times astounded by the ignorant and dangerous ideas people express about this thing called race. Why are so many people so incredibly confused and misinformed about race? It's the white supremacy, stupid. As I'll demonstrate throughout this book, one of the main consequences of centuries of racism is that we are all systemically exposed to racial stupidity and racist beliefs that warp our understandings of society, history, and ourselves. In other words, living in a racist society socializes us to be stupid about race. Of course, as you well know, some people are more afflicted by racial stupidity than others. We'll get into the nature of those variations a bit later. For now, I want to emphasize just how widespread and ubiquitous racial ignorance really is. Politicians routinely spout racist distortions of reality and lie about the existence and nature of racial oppression. Absurd racial stereotypes pervade our various forms of media. And as noted, textbooks systemically misrepresent racial history in ways that minimize or erase racism altogether. And all too often, teachers themselves are undereducated or miseducated about the history and ongoing realities of racial oppression. How to Be Less Stupid About Race explores precisely how and why racial stupidity has become so terribly pervasive and examines the cesspool of silly ideas, half-truths, and ridiculous misperceptions 
that have thoroughly corrupted the way race and racism are represented in the classroom, pop culture, media, and politics. The key idea that I'll come back to again and again is that living in a racist society exposes us all to absurd and actually harmful ideas that in turn help maintain the racial status quo. Drawing from my own experience as an educator and as someone who continually confronts my own racial ignorance, I'll also share some concrete steps that you, as well as your racist friends, ignorant family members, and clueless co-workers can take to become less stupid about race and better equipped to detect and dismantle racial oppression. While I don't personally believe in post-racial utopias and I don't put a lot of faith in reaching glorious mountaintops, I know for sure that the very first step in challenging racism is having a clear understanding of what it actually is. Not only are we surrounded by stupid ideas about race, we are even surrounded by stupid ideas about how to talk about race. In May 2015, Starbucks launched a doomed campaign called Race Together to encourage baristas and coffee drinkers around the country to have a conversation about race. Although many might have mistaken the campaign for a satirical entry on The Onion, Starbucks announced that its employees had the option of arbitrarily writing the hashtag race together on a random customer's cup. Aspiring coffee drinkers minding their own damn business would then be obliged to say something to the barista about race. After a steady stream of criticism and mockery on social media by anti-racists across the color spectrum, yours truly included, the company eventually backpedaled and canceled the initiative. To some, encouraging random people to talk about race sounds like a step in the right direction. But we don't need more profit-driven corporations to take a stand and say that race is a legitimate and important topic of discussion. Rather than thinking about the best practices that might foster a productive discussion about race, the company executives thought best to just sort of tell everyone to figure it out without providing any educational resources, training, or guidelines whatsoever. In a letter to employees, Starbucks chairman Howard Schultz stated that he conceived of the idea, quote, not to point fingers and not because we have answers, but because staying silent is not who we are. How to be less stupid about race by Crystal Fleming. Leroy in Baltimore, Maryland. Hey, Leroy, what's up? How you doing, Tom? I'm, I'm calling about a topic when you were speaking to the guy from Harlem about that, you know, when whites get money, that they will act a little bit better. Just paraphrasing that. Yeah, not and just whites. Right across the board, everybody. Everybody. Okay, well, like I said, so it was kind of what it, But the point I want to make is that no matter how bad it is, how good it is during the 60s when Martin Luther King was marching and stuff like that, he said Chicago was one of the most racist places that he ever been to. The country was prosperous. I used to live from Manhattan. I used to live on the Upper East Side. And when the whites found out that I lived in the building, it, it felt like it cheapened it to them. It's like they no longer wanted to live there. They couldn't believe that I lived there. And it was all, all kind of stuff. When black professionals go on to the job, even though the people on the jobs are wealthy, they get treated badly. So like the guy from Harlem said, I just don't think that there are people. Oh, and one more thing. Doing the Cosby's. Oh, let, let me just before before you move topics, Leroy. Let me just let me yes, just sir. restate my point because okay. uh, maybe I said it really poorly, or maybe I you know, okay. what, maybe I didn't understand his comment. <sighs> if you look at poor white communities, you will find high rates of crime. If you look at middle class white communities, you find much lower rates of crime. If you look at poor black communities, you will find high rates of crime. If you look at middle class black communities, you find very low rates of crime. When people have enough, and yes, there are criminals you know, among all of us, right? But generally speaking, when people have enough, they don't resort to crime. They conduct themselves normally. And so if you want to have peace in your society, and if you want to work toward building a society that works for everybody, then step one, there's a dog chasing his tail argument here, I, I realize. You know, Bernie would come out and say, you know, we've got to deal with the economics. And people would say, but wait a minute, you're ignoring the race. And he would say, no, it, the, the race is coming out of the economics. And people would say, no, the economics are coming out of the race. And it's all true, right? All of it's right. true. But if we, want to, if we want to have a society that works for everybody, it's got, we've got to start by making sure that it works for everybody not just around the margins and not just with things like laws about how we behave toward each other, but economically, that that economic yeah. foundation 
is what all of our families rest on. It's what all of our neighbors, neighborhoods rest on. And, and ultimately, it's what our, our civilization, you know, to the extent that we have one, rests on. Right. That was my point, Leroy. Right, right. No, no, I, I understand that. Time, and, I, and I agree with you 100%. And it's just that some of the things that he was saying that I agree with, that a lot of times that when whites do see you in a situation, they feel you shouldn't have and devaluate. Just like the Cosbys. Do you know how many white people were upset about the Cosbys? I came from New York City, and New York City is one of the most segregated places in the world. People were having a fit because of fictional television. How can black people live like that? Now, they were upset. They're living on the Upper East Side in Manhattan. They had wealthier jobs, and they were angry about the Cosbys. So, and just like Harlem, when gentrification comes, the people move in, they make much more than the people who live in the neighborhood, but yet they have such a disdain for the people in the neighborhood. They call the cops on them, people gathering outside at 9 o'clock. People normally sit outside playing the music. So I understand what you're saying about how everybody else, I just, I guess, you know, I just zeroed in on the part when he was talking about when it comes to blacks. So I agree with you on everything yeah. you said. But when it comes to blacks, it doesn't matter. It's, it appears that whites don't feel that if a black person has something and I go back to the Cosby's again, that they believe it takes something from them. That's that's what that's what I want to say. Yeah. No, and, and that's because in large part they've been told that for years and years by racists, by white racists telling white people, oh, you know, look out, black people are coming for your stuff. But I totally get what you're talking about, Leroy. I, you know, Louise and I for seven years lived at the water, down on the waterfront in Washington, D.C. And when we first moved in, the neighborhood was largely African-American, I'd say probably 80, 90 percent. And seven years later, by the time we moved out, it was rapidly gentrifying. And... Wow. I mean, just the brutality of, in many ways, of the gentrification. We attended one meeting where one of the developers was talking about, well, we'll take care of those people. Right. <laughs> it's like, what? Yes, 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 so, yes. So, yeah, I, to I totally get what you're saying. And this, you know, all this, this is institutional racism. It, it is cultural racism. It's, it's you know, baked in and it's stuff we have to resist in every way we possibly can. Yeah, yeah, and yes. to the extent that neighborhoods do change, we need to figure out ways to allow that to happen or not to happen, as the case may be, but yeah. in ways that don't harm the people who are there. Right? Yes. And I don't yes, have any sir. easy answer for that one, Leroy. I, no, Tom, no, you're brilliant. But like I said, I just never thought I would disagree with you. But um, I guess now that you made your point a little bit clearer, I understand it. And like I said, maybe it's my bias. I just heard the part about the blacks and, you know, and stuff like that. So that's what I wanted to say. But, but thank you yeah. for taking the time to listen to call me. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you for calling and, and pointing that out, Leroy. I always appreciate it when people either disagree with me or I didn't say what I should have said as well as I could have or should have said it. And I get straightened out. I do appreciate that. But I think that, like I said, I think that one of the most important things that we have to do, I, I, another example, all these white yahoos who are going to show up in D.C. tomorrow, you know, a lot of them, if they had a good job, wouldn't be there. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Coming up on The Science Revolution is Dr. Edwin C. May for an in-depth interview on how the federal government used ESP to spy on foreign governments. In brief, the U.S. military and intelligence communities funded a 20-year program to collect intelligence during the Cold War by using so-called psychics. Did it work? Was it successful? What happened and what can we learn from it? Dr. Edwin C. May also talks about the broader implications of ESP and psychics. Tune into The Science Revolution wherever fine podcasts are found. Kat in Vashon, Washington. Hey, Kat, what's up? Hey, Tom. Well, the MAGA wing of my family now has a COVID victim. I don't know what they're going to quite do about it. If they have to go to the hospital, it's in Los Angeles. And he happens to be a fireman. And he said that when they were talking about the vaccine, only 30% or so of his station would be willing to take the vaccine, which is horrifying to me. Do you, so, do you know, Kat, know what percentage of them have already tested positive and therefore probably think they don't need the vaccine because they think they're immune and they may well be? Yeah, I don't. I'm assuming because he, this family member, has just been diagnosed in his home. 
now. I'm not sure yet be sick, but I don't know how sick. And But if he has to go to the... So I'm assuming they live together, you know, for three days at the fire station. So I'm assuming right. there's going to be a large percentage that also have COVID. But these are the same people who don't believe in it. Uh, I'm just... How can you not believe in it when you're driving the ambulances that are taking the people to the hospital? I don't know. What am I missing? Um, I, there's no rhyme nor reason, and and most of my family also, to make it even stranger to me, oh, they're brown. You know, they're. Ah, it, it, uh, I'm just. I'm at my. I'm at my wits' end with all this. I don't know how you can't. I was talking to some friends yesterday, or a friend that I've had since junior high school. Same thing. Not taking that. And she works in an old folks' home, scrubbing toilets at my age, and I'm your age, Tom. Wow. And says that if, and she needs that job, and she says if they're mandated to take the vaccine, she'll she'll quit. Really? Uh, yeah. That's, and I, that's I don't nuts. know where we're. I don't know where we're going. Do you know what her with, media diet is? For me, oh, I've never asked. Uh, it, well, the ones in California I know are Q, Banan, and I mean the you know that far so, end of the whole thing. And here, so they here, didn't want to be Fox News. Uh, well, yeah, beyond Fox News. But see, I'm used to that. I, when you tell stories of your growing up and going with your dad to support Goldwater and whatnot. I was going with my Nazi mother to Richard Butler's house. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. And okay. she, my mother, complete narcissist, this whole thing with Trump, it's just the PTSD that's involved because it's what people have to understand. My mother's passed now, but not before. Two of my siblings went in violent ways because of these people. And it hasn't so sorry to hear changed that. at all. Yeah. Not yeah, it's almost like the, uh, the crazies all. have reached out through, through YouTube and Facebook to, to find all the other crazies, and they're creating a tribe. It's amazing. Well, I used Kat, to I got to run, but finish your thought. I used to have to hide. You know, I couldn't tell anybody at school what my mother's politics. Oh, jeez. Not now. That's got to be You're tough. out and proud. Kat, I got to run. I got to run. Thank you very much for the call. So what makes Trump supporters Trump supporters? Good question, right? Well, Psychology Today did a deep dive into a whole bunch of literature on this and a number of studies and concluded that there were five characteristics that crossed right across virtually all Trump supporters. And I do a deep dive on these on our video over at TomHartman.com today. But here's essentially what it says. Number one, they are authoritarians, by and large authoritarian followers. They want a strong father figure to make them feel safe. Number two, social dominance orientation. They believe in a caste system and they think they should be in the top caste. Number three, prejudice. They view people of other races poorly. Number four, intergroup contact. Most of them have never experienced significant contact with people of another race or people deeply different than them. And number five, relative deprivation. They feel like they've been screwed. They're not sure why. And Trump tells them, oh, it's those brown people. It's all over at TomHartman.com. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. By the way, uh, Jim Clyburn uh, apparently agrees with me. He, I, or maybe I agree with him. He said it first. This was in an interview on CNN yesterday. He said, I do believe with only 14 or 15 days left in this presidency, it would be a waste of our time here in the House to pursue impeachment. I suspect if all that I heard on this tape is to be investigated, there could very well be criminal charges brought by state and local governments down there in Georgia. I would hope that that would be pursued. And that is something that can be pursued even after January 20th. We have had a policy in this country since the founding of the country that we put criminals in jail or we hold them to account some way. Community service, fines, public censure, slap on the wrist, whatever it may be. Except for our presidents. 
We've never really held a president to account. And you say, well, Richard Nixon resigned. Yeah, we didn't hold him to account. The Republican Party held him to account. It was Republicans in the U.S. Senate and the U.S. House who walked over to the White House and, and sat Tricky Dick down and said, Dick, you've gone over the edge. You've got to resign. But after that, eh, no accountability. He gets to write books and live in San Clemente and have a good old time. Meanwhile, Donald Trump is talking about, well, we don't know, actually. The White House has notified Scotland that the airport right down the road from Aberdeen, which is where the Trump Turnberry golf course is, should expect on January 19th a presidential 747. Yesterday I said I thought it was Air Force Two. I was wrong. Several people pointed this out to me on Twitter and a couple people even emailed me. And thank you for, you know, when I get things wrong, I appreciate it when people point it out to me. No need to call me an idiot, but I appreciate it when you point it out to me. That Air Force One is not a specific airplane. Air Force One is the designation given to any, air, any airplane that the president happens to be flying in. And so, you know, if it's the 757, well, you know, if Trump's aboard, it'll be Air Force One. Whatever it is, though, they're, they're saying this 757 that, you know, ha is painted in blue and has the seal and all that stuff, that's expected to arrive in Scotland on January 19th. So the uh, first prime minister, the first minister of Scotland, Nicola Sturgeon, says, uh, maybe not. You've got to have an essential reason to come to Scotland. And playing golf isn't one. This is what she said uh, yesterday. Actually, it was this morning, their time. It was the middle of the night, you know, last night, our time. Uh, Nikolai Sturgeon says, we are not allowing people to come into Scotland without any central purpose right now. And that would apply to him, that's Donald Trump, just as it applies to anybody else. And coming in to play golf is not what I would consider to be an essential purpose. Donald, Scotland doesn't want you. <laughs> Amazing. Michelle in Denver. Hey, Michelle, what's up? We've been fighting for our rights for 400 years. So to me, it's not about economic stability because Obama provided a lot of them with more economic stability when he was president. So you got to wonder what the deal is. And really it's down to race they want to divide us and that's basically how they keep us in this status limbo of not having enough not being enough including the people they consider white trash they just buy into it because they're racist as well and we got to start calling these trump supporters what they are they don't care about their economic status. I've listened to interviews. I've seen people say they just don't want us to have equal rights in this country. And as black people that built it, we're continually saving this country from itself, and yet we can't get equality. We can't get justice. If you don't do something with Trump, you're going to cause a civil war from our side because this can't keep going on where they get away with stuff just because they have white privilege either because we're being punished at 10 times the rate, including with death, including with prison sentence, including with COVID, including with economic status. At some point, it's got to come to a head. And if we don't start resolving this problem, that's all we're going to have is constant wars within this country because we're saving this democracy and we're showing up for a country that doesn't care about us, literally doesn't care if we live here today and die tomorrow. And that has to stop. We have to find a way to put people in office that are going to be legitimate people that care about all Americans and want to make sure that black Americans get equality as well. If it includes reparations or whatever else, it needs to include it. Because at this point, what we've had to tolerate for over 400 years is beyond the realm of constant thinking. And we don't even stand for the Constitution. We don't stand for what we say we value. Freedom, liberty, justice, happiness for all. 
And the forefathers were part of that, too. They should have seen that this was going to become an issue because some of them were slave owners. So we've never been counted in this country, and it has to stop. We have to find a way to get good people in office, and we all got to stand up for it. And it can't be blacks doing it anymore because we have done as much as we can in this country. We showed up. We're at 80-some, 90% in voting. We, we can't do it anymore. We need people to advocate on our behalf now and to make sure that things get passed that help every single American, not just the ones with white privilege. I completely agree with you, Michelle. What did I say that caused you to think that I disagreed with any of that? I don't think you disagree. I just happen to believe that no matter what happens in this country, Obama did a good job. He was never recognized for that. He had the longest economic run in the presidential history. Did he get credit for it? (laughs) So how many of those Americans did he help that supported Trump? How many of those did he help? How many of those had good paying jobs? How many of those people were able to buy a home? How many of those people were able to feel like they had economic wealth in this country? And that's the problem is it comes down to race with them. And we've got to start saying it's including the Republican Party. Mitch McConnell is a racist. Lindsey Graham is a racist. All of them are racist, and they've worked over generations to get us to this point. Trump is just being used because he will do whatever they want, and he's racist as well as he's thinking about himself, too. So they found their perfect I, I agree candidate. With, I agree with all those points, Michelle. The point that I would put on this is that Reaganomics, for 40 years now, we have been in this economic experiment where we are aggressively moving money up to the top 5% of Americans and aggressively stripping, basically strip mining the bottom 90% of Americans. And as people of all races, right across the board, become poorer and more and progressively more and more disempowered and disenfranchised, all the fault lines of society, and race is the largest fault line in our society, but there are others as well, including gender. Those fault lines not only become more visible, but they also become tools that can be used by people who would exploit those divisions between people and those animosities that come out of those divisions for their own political purposes, which we're seeing Donald Trump doing. And that's why I agree with you on every, absolutely everything you said. I am a big fan of reparations. We need to correct the, these past wrongs. And we need to bring back the American middle class, only this time do it in a way that's fully inclusive. And with the economic policies of Reaganism, we will not be able to do that. And that, to, the, you know, in, to your defense of Barack Obama, I, you know, I largely agree. He had 72 days where he had a veto-proof Senate. That was it. And so it was not within his power to reverse Reaganism. There's no doubt in my mind that he would have wanted to or would have liked to. But I think that that's really a starting point and obviously, you know, dealing with race head on. Uh, I hope I'm making sense. Michelle, I'm sorry, the, the music has started. Thank you. Thank you so much for the call. It's great to hear from you. Spot on. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Today from Birthright Citizens, A History of Race and Rights in Antebellum America by Martha S. Jones. In the introduction, Rights of Colored Men, Debating Citizenship in Antebellum America is the title of the introduction. The title of William Yeats's 1838 treatise, Rights of Colored Men, aptly captures the subject of this book. The 19th century Americans for whom Yeats wrote were fascinated by a juridical puzzle. Not slaves, nor aliens, nor the equals of free white men, who were former slaves and their descendants before the law. None were more interested in this question than black Americans themselves, and birthright citizens takes up their point of view to tell the history of race and rights in the antebellum United States. The pressures brought on by so-called black laws and colonization schemes, 
especially a radical strain, explained why free people of color feared their forced removal from the United States. In response, they claimed an unassailable belonging, one grounded in birthright citizenship. No legal text expressly provided for such, but their ideas anticipated the terms of the 14th Amendment. Set in Baltimore, a place between North, South, and the Atlantic world, this book traces the scenes and the debates through which black Americans developed ideas about citizenship and claims to the rights that citizens enjoyed. Along the way, they engaged with legislators, judges, and laws, everyday administrators. From the local courthouse to the chambers of high courts, the rights of colored men came to define citizenship for the nation as a whole. Yates authored the very first legal treatise on the rights of free black Americans. It was 1838 when rights of colored men to suffrage, citizenship, and trial by jury was published in Philadelphia. He was not one of antebellum America's highly regarded legal minds. Some say he read law for a time, although there's no evidence that he was admitted to the bar. Instead, Yates's career began with a short-lived stint as a newspaper publisher in his hometown of Troy, New York. His bona fides on the subject of race and citizenship were best established during his years as an agent for the American Anti-Slavery Society. While many abolitionists maintained a self-conscious distance from free black communities, Yates centered his work there. The oppression of free people of color was a companion to slavery, in Yates's view, with anti-slavery work necessarily extending into questions of free people's status. Penning rights of colored men was the pinnacle of this mission. Yates placed a powerful instrument of authority in the hands of free African Americans and their allies. The antebellum legal treatise was a key tool in the standardization and dissemination of legal knowledge and was typically devoted to the comprehensive synthesis of a single branch of law. By the late 1830s, Yates was following on the success of James Kent's commentaries in Joseph Story's treatise series. The genre had come to be associated with the concepts of law as scientific knowledge, legal education as systemic, and the profession as respectable. Yates successfully adopted legal culture's own tool to such a degree that readers from the 19th century until today have regarded him as an authority on free black legal status. But Yates's text was also a work of advocacy. Rights of colored men received prominent notices in the black and abolitionist press and could be purchased at local anti-slavery society offices. As a result, the work served as a probing legal treatise that fueled activist arguments. Yates provides a window into the position that some activists, black and white, took on race and citizenship in the end of the 1830s. Law was an instrument of change, and Yates Fort rightfully explained his objective to undermine prejudice against color. Racism had led to legal disability, exclusion from militia service, naturalization, suffrage, public schooling, ownership of real property, office holding, and courtroom testimony. Yates was especially unsettled by the disenfranchisement of free black men in New Jersey, New York, Connecticut, and more recently Pennsylvania. Assembling evidence from legal culture, he believed, would help establish the rights and citizenship of free black people. Yates began with a story of the nation's origin. The establishment of the United States, he said, had been at the outset a revolutionary, republican, and enlightened undertaking that was untainted by racism or distinctions among and between races. This had been possible in the wake of the American Revolution because the founding generation knew firsthand the contributions black people had made to independence through military service and through labor. American law had originally been colorblind, as evidenced by the absence of racial distinctions in founding documents such as the federal and state constitutions. Change came in the early 19th century at the fault line between generations. A forgetting occurred, Yates posited. Lawmakers of the early republic did not know how black people had contributed to the nation's founding and hence were entitled to the privileges and immunities of citizens. In this sense, Yeats's aim was partly to restore that past to the nation's political and legal memory. To achieve this, he compiled a history of lawmakers and their deliberations in which he found the development of anti-black prejudice in courts, constitutional conventions, and legislatures. He followed the professional lives of men whose work included roles from low-level administrator to convention delegate and judge. Their ideas about free black people moved with them. Most powerful was Yates' argument about how law, through suffering from amnesia, could be made right. The book, Birthright Citizens, A History of Race and Rights in Antebellum America. 
Hey, Tom Hartman here. Just wanted to give you a heads up that we have an absolutely free newsletter. You can subscribe to it over at TomHartman.com. And every day, Sue, who works on our newsletter, puts together what we call Sue's Daily Stack. It's literally a link to every story I have referenced on the air in the program. And she compiles these throughout the program and then gets the newsletter together. And it goes out an hour or two after the show is off the air. And it's just absolutely extraordinary and something I think you'll find really useful. So check it out at TomHartman.com. Thank you for being with us today. Another fascinating day tomorrow. That's when the hearings or the opening of the envelopes, as it were, begins in Washington, D.C. We will be popping back and forth, uh, you know, if they're going in procedural motions and stuff like that. I'll come back on and talk with you. Otherwise, we will be carrying a lot of that live on this program. So tomorrow should be a very interesting day. Now, in the meantime, don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport. It starts with you. So get out there and get active. Tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.